Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Bronco Marchetich, a staff writer with Jacobin Magazine, who discusses his recent article titled, What are the chances for a negotiated end to the Ukraine war? It's complicated. Christopher Viles, Director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut, who assesses President Biden's recent speech, warning of the threat posed to democracy by Donald Trump and authoritarian Republicans. And Rob Ritchie, founding president and CEO of FairVote, who talks about Alaska's first-time use of ranked-choice voting in its August primary election and the future of ranked-choice voting in U.S. elections. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Longtime Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas is the world's fourth oldest head of state at age 86. Abbas is the only remaining Israeli or Palestinian leader who stood on the White House lawn in 1993 to sign the Oslo Peace Accords. Today, there are constant rumors about Abbas's ill health. After 18 years as head of the Palestinian Authority, Abbas has never named a successor, and his sudden death could spark a battle among Palestinians to choose a new leader. Abbas has spent much of the summer visiting foreign capitals, including those of France, Romania, and Jordan. During Abbas's state visit to Germany, he was asked if he should apologize for the Palestinian terrorist massacre of 11 Israeli athletes at the 1972 Olympics. In response, Abbas blasted Israel for inflicting 50 holocausts on Palestinians, comments that were widely condemned. Marwan Barghouti, the popular leader of the Fatah military wing, who is serving five life sentences in an Israeli jail, announced last year his intention to run for president in the upcoming Palestinian Authority elections. Another contender is Abbas loyalist Hussein al-Sheikh, the new number two leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Al-Sheikh is a trusted figure among Israeli officials and American diplomats, but has little support among the Palestinian people. The Commonwealth of Puerto Rico has a long history of offering generous tax breaks to big pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, Merck, and Johnson & Johnson. There are 50 pharmaceutical plants on the island, making many of the best-selling drugs for arthritis, stroke, and cancer. The advocacy group Hedge Clippers estimates Big Pharma gets tax breaks, totaling $14.5 billion, more than the annual operating budget of Puerto Rico's government. As the island suffers through a steep economic decline, there is a dramatic exodus of residents to the U.S. mainland. The Nation magazine reports 43% of the island's 3.3 million people are mired in poverty and 1 million are living at risk of hunger. Moreover, many schools have not opened due to a lack of resources and staff. Critics point out the tax breaks have only created 7,000 jobs in the Commonwealth, mostly paying low wages and service and security jobs that don't cover rent and other living expenses. At the same time, Big Pharma's CEOs make an average $20 million a year, 
it's clear that the tax breaks the pharmaceutical industry receives are doing little more than fattening corporate profits that never make their way to the majority of Puerto Rican workers. Walmart and Tyson Foods have turned northwest Arkansas into modern-day company towns. Both corporations are looking to make life more comfortable for executives and top managers, while life for poorly paid line workers is becoming increasingly harsh. Workers in these two cities suffer from low pay and lack of benefits, but a culture of silence around corporate power has left them powerless to demand change. Local infrastructure and economic development are aimed at boosting upper-middle-class families and high-end cultural attractions. Today, Bentonville, where Walmart is headquartered, is a white-collar hub which is 70% white. Springdale, Tyson's home base, is segregated with immigrants from Mexico and Central America making less than $35,000 a year. Many people in northwest Arkansas, including those involved with local community organizations and nonprofits, feel deeply indebted to the Tysons and the Walton family who own Walmart and are thus unwilling to voice criticisms of them even when local residents believe it's deserved. The American Prospect reports that many people in this part of Arkansas are afraid that criticizing the powers that be will jeopardize theirs or their family members' ability to get a job in the area. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. It's been six months since Russia launched its brutal war in Ukraine that has caused unspeakable carnage, brutality, and widespread destruction. With no reliable estimates of casualties, it's certain that the death toll among soldiers on both sides in the conflict are tragically high, with large numbers of civilians also killed and injured by indiscriminate bombing and missile strikes. On top of the horrors of war suffered by the Ukrainian people, the threat of nuclear catastrophe also looms as fighting near Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the largest in Europe, risks the spread of deadly radiation. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has recently called for a demilitarized zone around the plant. The U.S. and its NATO allies continue to supply weapons to the Ukraine military with recent shipments of sophisticated missile launchers. The Biden administration just sent Ukraine nearly $3 billion in new military aid that they say will provide weapons and training to enable forces there to fight for years to come. Your reporter spoke with Branko Marchetich, staff writer with Jacobin Magazine, who discusses his recent article titled, What are the chances for a negotiated end to the Ukraine war? It's complicated. This is a, a really terrible war. Uh, I think everyone, you're seeing these images and, and, and daily reports about how it's going, and, and it's incredibly horrific and distressing. Um, and so I think for that reason, it's, it's particularly important to try and do what we can to, to find some way to end it as soon as possible, you know, in, in a way that gives people some, some breathing room in Ukraine and, and in other parts of Europe. 
so that's why I think it's really important to, to try and look at what are the chances, what are the openings potentially for some sort of diplomatic uh, settlement. In terms of obstacles, I mean, this war has been going on for, for months now. Uh, the longer a war goes on, the more destruction and killing pile up. And also the more chances there are of, of atrocities. Of course, we saw that in Ukraine with the, the, the Bucha massacre. The more that kind of brutality just builds and builds, each side kind of tends to get dug in. Um, they're less willing to, to negotiate with the other side. They tend to see the side more as, as um, implacable enemies that can't be reasoned with, that, that you know, that there's a, a vengefulness, of course, that builds up. And so all of that, you know, if you look at that, it is quite a pessimistic picture. It does suggest that, that neither side is really ready to uh, settle and, and, and talk and, and find some sort of solution. But as I try to lay out in the article, that's not the whole story. I think there is also some indications of both sides being a little more open to uh, negotiation than we might think. I'd like for you to review some of the positive signs that uh, both sides at least are leaving an opening for peace talks and an eventual peaceful settlement. What are some of those? One really big one is the, the grain deal that was brokered by uh, the UN, basically because as part of the war, Russia was blockading Ukrainian ports and also Ukraine and, and, and Russia had both laid mines uh, in, in the Black Sea. Uh, there was all this, this Ukrainian grain that was held up, I think 20 million tons, which is contributing to this, this global food price spike and also uh, hunger crisis uh, that's particularly acute in the global south. And so uh, it was a couple of months ago they, they signed an agreement. At the time, there was a lot of skepticism about this. A lot of people were saying, oh, you know, Russia just signs agreements in order to get an advantage, and then they're going to sign this and they're going to go back on it, and it's not going to work out. But actually, uh, a few months in, the agreement has been a success. Basically, the agreement allows Ukrainian ships to basically guide these boats carrying grain and other agricultural exports through the sea to navigate the mines, to get there safely so that this food can get to where it needs to go. And of course, that's going to help Ukraine. It's going to provide revenue for them. It's also going to help the countries that are getting this stuff. I think so far, the last figure I remember seeing was I think 1 million tons of grain had been moved. So, you know, look, there's still 19 million tons that's held up, but that, that's a pretty good sign. And, and it, the important thing about it is that it shows even while both of these sides are very bitterly fighting, you know, the, there's a nationalist, very jingoistic upsurge in both countries that's sort of been set into motion by this war and by the, the, the media in you know, each side, as, as tends to happen during war. But despite this, they were able to come together and find some way to resolve it. I would say that's probably the most optimistic uh, sign that it is possible to find some sort of agreement. Uh, there's been some other positive signs. I mean, you know, on the, on the Russian side, even though we keep hearing that, that Russia's not really inclined to negotiate, the former German chancellor, uh, who's, a, who's a Putin ally, he, he said that he talked to him and Putin was open to a negotiated settlement. You know, that's, that's just one data point, so that's not much. But then you combine it with the fact that also Politico reported, I think, back in June, the Russian ambassador to the U.S., uh, was overheard, actually. So this was not a, an official interview. This was something that was surreptitiously caught by a political reporter in a, in a restaurant in D.C., uh, saying to uh, the person he was having dinner with, basically, yeah, you're correct, we, we need an agreement to end this war. And then later on, he denied it, of course, when the, when the report went public. Uh, but that, the fact that he denied it 
suggests that this was not something that he was meant to be saying, that there is still a possibility to do it. Now, the, the problem is to actually get these two sides to talk, I think, requires not just forcing them to to do it. I, I think it really is going to involve uh, the United States getting involved in the, in the negotiation and, you know, the United States actually being a party to those negotiations because there are certain things that only the United States can, uh, can offer. That was Bronco Marchetich, a staff writer with Jacobin Magazine and co-host of the One of 200 podcast. Find a link to his recent article titled, What are the Chances for a Negotiated End to the Ukraine War? and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. President Biden delivered a major speech in Philadelphia on the evening of September 1st that was unlike most presidential addresses heard in recent decades. The central message of the speech was a warning to the American people about the danger posed by Donald Trump and what he called MAGA Republicans to the continued survival of American democracy. The threat, Biden had earlier described as semi-fascist, included the assertion that MAGA Republicans do not respect the Constitution, do not believe in the rule of law, and do not recognize the will of the people. The president observed that Trump and his GOP supporters look at the violent mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th not as insurrectionists, but as patriots. Biden went on to warn that MAGA forces are determined to take the country backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, and no right to marry who you love. Many in the Republican Party now embrace so-called white replacement theory that believes the white race in the U.S. is threatened, deliberately being replaced by non-Christian immigrants from around the world. Your reporter spoke with Christopher Viles, professor of English and director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut, who assesses President Biden's speech and the danger of the normalization of right-wing political violence. It was long overdue. I think he left himself vulnerable to critique later on in the same speech when he tied all of that to, you know, basically Democratic Party legislative victories of late. Um, and in so doing, he kind of lost, I think, a little bit of the kind of abstract moral high ground. Um, but that said, um, it, if he did not do something like that, I think he's in danger of going down in history, given what might happen next as somebody who just had his head in the sand. Um, and there's nothing that he said about, you know, I don't think his assessment of the, the MAGA Republicans, as he called them, is, is, was wrong at all, right? So um, because this is a group that, as he said, I mean, has been, been diligently working since the 2020 election to make sure that they fill all spots of election officials um, with people who are party loyalists, who will just do whatever Trump says and trying to do their best to make sure that people like Brad Raffensperger and Georgia, the secretary of state of that state, doesn't have their offices. And so you, you're trying to get Republicans who do not adhere to that basic you know, idea of rule of law, which is what saved us um, the last time around. 
so yes, the the danger is real. Not not to mention the kind of embrace of radical ideas and general authoritarianism amongst the wing of the Republican Party, the MAGA wing, that is also the dominant wing too. Which is something I never thought I would. That kind of authoritarianism, even I, when I wrote the Honed by Hitler book, didn't think I was going to see it in the United States in my lifetime. And I guess what's alarming when um, Biden was talking about the push towards political violence, how if you look at Trump's tweets, um, he is pretty consistently defending the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th as patriots and has even promised repeatedly to pardon them when he becomes uh, president in 2024, you know, clearly like victor's justice, right? So in saying you're going to pardon people who basically tried to overthrow the election by force, you've already pretty much said you have nothing to do with the rule of law. Force is your rule. Um, anything that will defend your kind of narcissistic ego, right? And and that's classic authoritarianism. I don't think I fully understood the term rule of law until I watched kind of the January 6th um, hearings over and over, meaning that rule of law means there is one set of rules and laws, not just a set of rules and laws for your political opponents, and you get to do whatever you want. So again, that, that threat of violence is real. And um, while I'm sure the federal government could be doing more, um, they're at least taking some steps in the right direction, which is which is heartening. What I find very frightening is the fact that if you had a head of state in Europe, Asia, Africa, Latin America, who attempted to overthrow a government and nullify millions of people's votes in a once every four year election for the presidency, and that person continued to walk freely, make speeches, and make calls to violence targeting law enforcement, election officials, as well as politicians and their families, I would think that that country was a failed state, that the rule of law did not exist in that nation. And I look at Trump and all his co-conspirators in the failed coup attempt. They're walking freely, and they continue to make calls to destroy what's left of our very flawed democracy in this country. I think that is very true. And I think what is it is also a sign of is that one third, about one third of the electorate has embraced that very Trumpism, right? So you, you basically got one third of the population that has um, believed the lie, basically, that Trump puts out, that an attack on me is an attack on you, right? So there are about a third of the population that feels when you come after Trump, you come after them, they are very armed. So yes, we are in many ways already a failed state. And this is all already... Um, the makings of, um, you know, a, an authoritarian state, even a fascist state in the making. Keep in mind that fascist states, you know, particularly the most famous ones of Germany and Italy, but also you can throw in Spain, um, they didn't come to power after the fascist won an election. They always come to power after the fascist either lose an election or declining in popularity, right? Um, and it really only takes about a third of the population to support them and believe in them to take over the state and take over the government. 
I think given the volatile nature, the government does need to, and the United States does need to proceed carefully, but proceed it should and must. So, yes, I do agree with you that we are in very, very dangerous times. I, I do, I'm not really resting kind of comfortably at night, um, given the level of political violence that's become acceptable. That was Christopher Viles, professor of English and director of American Studies at the University of Connecticut, and co-author of the book, The U.S. Anti-Fascism Reader. Find more commentary on President Biden's speech on the threats to democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In Alaska's primary election on August 16th, Democrat Mary Peltola emerged victorious. Peltola defeated two Republicans in the state's first foray into both ranked-choice voting and an open primary, where all candidates compete together, not in separate Republican and Democratic Party elections. Peltola, who is the first Alaska native to serve in Congress, will fill the remainder of Republican Don Young's term in Congress, which ends in January 2023. Young died in office after serving almost 50 years as the state's sole congressional representative. The three candidates who ran in the primary, Peltola and Republicans Nick Begich and Sarah Palin, the state's former governor and 2008 GOP vice presidential candidate, will run for a full two-year term for that seat this November, joined by a fourth independent candidate. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Rob Ritchie, the founding president and CEO of FairVote, a group established in 1992 to develop, win, and implement ranked choice voting, proportional voting, electoral college reform, and automatic voter registration in states and cities across the country. Here he discusses the historic nature of Alaska's August vote and the future of ranked choice voting in U.S. elections. Alaska, for the first time uh, in its history, used ranked choice voting this month. And what we saw was one of the highest turnouts it's ever had uh, for this kind of contest. We saw voters adapt to the system very quickly. Um, of those who voted in the contest, fully 99.8% uh, cast a valid ballot, even though it was a ranked ballot for the first time. And uh, when the candidate who finished third was eliminated and his ballots were examined, you know, 80% of those voters decided to rank someone um, second. Rob Ritchie, how does positive or negative campaigning impact the process of ranked choice voting, or RCV? Yeah, so in a ranked choice system, and it's getting a lot more popular, so I would say it's the most popular new reform on the scene. It's now in place in more than 50 cities and counties. It's used for presidential and congressional elections in Maine and Alaska. So we're seeing it in action more. It was used in New York City, you know, and in, in, in San Francisco and in Minneapolis and so on. And And what we're learning is that the candidates who uh, show they respect voters, that they you know, are in a competitive field, they're not getting more than half the vote. So in a ranked choice system, you, you rank the candidates, you add up all the first choices. If someone wins more than half of the vote in the first round, first choice, then it's over. 
But if not, you don't have a winner yet. And the candidate who trails the field is in last place gets eliminated. Their ballots examined, added to those voters' next choices. And you uh, sort of rinse and repeat until a candidate gets more than half the votes. So it kind of deals with the classic problem of uh, that people can uh, feel when there's a third party candidate and they, well, I'd like that candidate, but I don't want to throw my vote away. Or are they going to be a spoiler or that whole conversation? It, it really addresses that. But because there's these multiple candidates, you as a candidate have some incentive to find common ground with more voters uh, so that there's an opponent and you would rather the voter ranks you first, but sometimes they're not going to. And then you have to find a reason for them to, to rank you second. And um, if you run kind of a scorched earth campaign where you know no one else is, is worthy, you're separating yourself off from everyone else. And that was definitely what Sarah Palin did. She herself did not rank candidates. She criticized the system, where the rules in which she was running, you know, even though 60% of voters did vote for a Republican, there were more than one Republican. And uh, when the other Republican finished last, only half of those voters ranked Sarah Palin as, as a next choice. And almost a third of them ranked a Democrat ahead of Sarah Palin. And then another chunk decided to just skip the race entirely. So that that, you know, was sort of punishing her way of, of running in the election, but also really rewarding what, what Mary Patola, the successful Democrat, did. She's the first Native uh, Native Alaskan ever to be elected to Congress, and she kind of ran a very inclusive campaign. She looked for connection. She uh, talked about practical problems that she would try to address in Congress, and I think she just was successful in, in building a majority coalition, even in a state that, that, that leans more conservative. I read that Nick Begich, the other Republican candidate, was a poster boy for how not to run a ranked choice voting campaign. Can you explain? He did say he ranked. He he was asked in, in a debate, are you going to rank someone? He said, I'm going to rank Sarah Palin second. But he also ran a very hardcore negative campaign against Sarah Palin. Now, Sarah Palin has a lot of negatives in Alaska. We, you know, nationally, we associate her with her, you know, vice presidential bid um, with John McCain. You know, very soon after that, as you know, she lost that election. And then she 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 resigned as governor, and then left Alaska. Did you know went on Dancing with the Stars, and you know, like so did some things that some Alaskans kind of rolled their eyes at, and they weren't happy with some of the things that she did as governor. And her negatives are quite high. More than sixty percent of Alaskans have an unfavorable view of Sarah Palin. So Begich ran a campaign that kind of played up on the negatives, but in a sense was you know, attacking a fellow Republican in a way that made it a lot easier for those Republicans, his backers, not to rank her second. So if Republicans want to win this seat, the trick for them is they will have to figure out a way to distinguish between themselves and yet also be civil enough and connecting enough that more Republican votes stay with those two Republican candidates. And and it's not clear what will happen in November as far as which one of them finishes third, but one of them likely will. Patola will very likely get the most votes. And then the question will be whether those votes stick with the Republicans or whether Patola once again peels off some of those Republican votes. And when you run a highly negative campaign like Begich did, you're just making it more uh, harder for them to kind of stick together as a uh, as a voting block. We're really pleased with how ranked voting worked. We're really excited. It's on the ballot in nine cities and counties. It's on the ballot in Nevada, and you know it's it's something that's really moving around the country. That was Rob Ritchie, founding president and CEO of the group FairVote. Learn more about ranked choice voting and its future in U.S. elections by visiting our Between the Lines website 
at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.